Hello everyone, welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto, DeFi, and the metaverse. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and today we have Arif Khan from Aletheia AI. Arif, thanks for being here with us today. The Index Co-op community, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to learning and sharing a little bit more about us at Aletheia. Absolutely. Yeah, so why don't we start off by just you giving us your background, how did you get into crypto, and then also like what drove you to get interested in artificial intelligence as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Singapore, and uh, my opportunities uh, once you graduate from university in Singapore, you tend to follow a very linear corporate path because it's it's an island state; it's a small country. And it has a large number of multinational companies anchored there. There's a clear sort of hierarchy and trajectory you follow. So that's sort of the path I took. Uh, I spent some time in tech. I worked at LinkedIn and then later on, I led product marketing at a company called Grab, which, uh, is, uh, which is really the Uber of Southeast Asia, backed by SoftBank. I think they've gone public. So during, during this period of time, uh, it was around 2016, 2017, I had some friends who started to... Uh, onboard people to Ethereum. Back then, it was still really, really uh, early days, and I think it was mid 2016 or late 2016 when I uh, first uh, came across it and was starting to experiment with it. At the same time, transparently, I was actually burning out from my corporate career because it was just it was just so intense to maintain almost um, uh, I'd say like a 12, 16 hour workday sustained over a couple of years. Uh, so that that sort of took its toll. So uh, once I started to really deeply understand Ethereum, I decided to take a leap of faith and quit my work and uh, experiment and try something new. And um, I moved to San Francisco and had an opportunity to interact with um, an area of interest of mine personally. It was in this group called Consciousness Hackers. I don't know whether they're still around anymore, but it's a group that was dedicated to uh, looking at how Consciousness, brainwave, science, spirituality, all of these things are mixing. And a couple of people there who were involved in the crypto ecosystem, unsurprisingly. And so that sort of got me involved deeper into the uh, crypto rabbit hole. And at the same time, I met a scientist. Uh, her name is Dr. Julia Mossbridge. And she was uh, researching. Her specific area of research is, is really it's really on the fringe uh, of of the scientific mainstream, but she her specific area of research is on unconditional love and also on time. Uh, so she's published some really interesting research and reports here that have been peer reviewed, and uh, she has a formal degree, I think, from Northwestern, and then is a trained um, has written uh, thoughtful papers and assessments on on this topic. So I was working with her uh, for a bit, uh, then later on I. As I started to formalize my path uh, in this, uh, I was recruited to join a, a company called Singularity Net, which was building a marketplace for uh, AI software. And it also had a robot and, and, and also had a, a specific focus on having this marketplace be curated by uh, the community. So it also had a decentralized blockchain component. So very interdisciplinary and I became the CMO. I did that for about two years. Then just foolishly, I like to say, <laughs> Before the pandemic, I decided somehow with all of the foresight I had gathered to start Aletheia, right? And then a month or two later, Sequoia has sent out a memo telling everyone to tighten their belts, no fundraising. And uh, yeah, that, that was really around uh, December 2019, early 2020, when 
uh, we, we fully went into the uh, creation and, and the building of the company, Alicia. Well, yeah, that's an interesting background. So with your tech background, are you uh, an engineer? Are you a developer? Or I guess what was your role in those uh, previous companies like LinkedIn and Grab? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so so my, my technical training, uh, professionally, I'm trained as a civil engineer. Like this was uh, a long time ago. And then later on, uh, graduate work, I uh, studied philosophy and business management as well. So it's, it's cross-disciplinary. Uh, my work in the corporate world has always been at the intersection of bringing technology to markets. So whether that's it's, it's what you'd call a go-to-market uh, role or a product marketing role or a product strategy and marketing role. So you'd work with product managers or you'd become a product manager and launch it. I'm not a developer uh, in the sense that I can't write smart contract code, but I can appreciate the complexity of it. Yeah, okay. And so you've already given us a little bit of background on the on the project, but what inspires you to fuse artificial intelligence and NFTs and kind of give us, just, I guess, some background on the project and what Aletheia does. Yeah, so I think um, this was primarily motivated by somewhat of my own personal pains as I, you know, prior to the pandemic, I used to travel quite a bit for business and I was, uh, as, you know, I was the chief marketing officer for Singularity and we had a robot called Sophia. So she's this like really uh, enigmatic uh, character and uh, she has like I think hundred or two hundred thousand plus Twitter followers, and she's a full personality really, and she's also an interactive uh, uh, chatbot. One of the problems with uh, traveling with a physical robot when you, I suppose, maybe I'll just crack one or two jokes here. But suppose when you, when in my case, I have a brown complexion. I am uh, Pakistani by name and by. Uh, physical looks as well. So if you see me, you probably think I'm from South Asia, but I grew up in Singapore. So it's very confusing for people at airport security when they see someone like me, right? So so, so they see someone like me, it's really confusing. I have to go through that process. On top of that, I have a robot with me. So that's that's the, that already causes me a lot of problems at airports. And the problem with the robot also is it's not like I have a robot with me in, in, in my luggage. It's I have to dismember. So Sophia has a head and she has a torso. So the head is in one suitcase and then the torso is in another one. That looks even more suspicious, right, as I, as I go through airport security. So the challenge there was actually, you know, we would set up Sophia at different events and uh, have her speak at, at these engagements. And a little bit later on, I started thinking, you know, what if we could scale up the presence of characters? And I started doing some research uh, personally uh, in in areas around deep fakes, like they were just starting to take off generative adversarial networks for creating uh, faces and voices. And so it started to get really interesting once they started seeing that high quality deep fakes were coming to life. And it would solve essentially the content creation problem. In other words, if I could take you, let's say Crypto Texan, um, take an avatar of you, take a photorealistic version of you, you don't have to travel to a conference or you don't ha- and you can speak a different language when you're there. It, it solves a lot of uh, the, the efficiencies that synthetic AI-generated media would create just in the marketing vertical would be tremendous, right? But more than that, it was the foundational transformation of like, hey, can AI create compelling content uh, that can that can not just supplement uh, human uh, content creation capabilities, but in fact, even teach us uh, and allow us to be inspired by the content it creates, right? And so this was sort of the early uh, stages of uh, building and thinking a little bit about synthetic AI-generated content. Once I started to dive deep into it and this whole universe opened up 
of, of course, you know, generative adversarial networks, but also large language models, most famously, you know, OpenAI GPT-3 engine. There's, they released some earlier models called GPT-2. So there's, there's an entire universe here of, uh, like I said, there's an entire machine learning revolution here that's occurring, but it's not so visible for NFT folks because we're so focused on the blockchain revolution, which by itself is a significant, like, I mean, trying trying to keep up in the NFT space and the blockchain space is already a monumental task, right? So as I started looking at synthetic media, as I started looking at how easy it is going to likely become as we follow Moore's law, it's going to become really easy to create content rapidly. It's going to become really easy to create high-quality synthetic voice, synthetic data, something that sounds like me, talks like me, has the intonation, has my facial expressions, over time, these things are going to become easy. What happens when you have an abundance of synthetic content? Our thesis, uh, my, my thesis was that you would need a provenance layer on content. You would need an element, and if you just look at nature, there's abundance, but there's also scarcity, right? So you need abundance. Synthetic media does that. It creates an abundance of content and can be abundance of just rubbish content also, right? Like if you look at the spam that can be generated uh, or fake videos, right? But then under that abundance, you need a scarcity engine as well to make sure that the content is uh, trusted and has some level of provenance. So that was the original thesis. And actually, when I wrote about it in January in December 2019, uh, there's a piece on Coindesk uh, that, 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 that is published back then on the synthetic media revolution and how uh, character IP is going to be transformed with blockchain property rights. What was interesting was because NFTs were really seen as a fad and a one-time thing back then by by the media and by, you know, I mean, it was just irrelevant, right? Like uh, CryptoKitties had congested the... Ethereum network, and that was about it, right? There was no real deep thought. So I had actually placed, and in, in if you go to the, um, I'm thinking maybe one day I should make an NFT of this specific edit, but like the Coindesk editors made me edit out NFTs and replace it with the word blockchain property rights. And so you'll see blockchain property rights there, and you'll see synthetic media, but the genesis of this has been there for some time. It just took us almost one and a half years of deep AI research to be able to combine these two things together. So our thesis is that, you know, AI-generated media, AI-generated content is going to foundationally transform the content landscape, the media landscape. And one of these areas that is going to be really powerful, that is going to be powerfully transformative is, is the area when you can start creating synthetic intelligence, right? So like intelligent characters, intelligent, intelligent interactive experiences. And so when you start thinking about um, AI and start thinking about how NFTs can provide a property rights layer, not just for JPEGs, but they can also provide a property rights layer for artificial intelligence. That's when it starts to get really, really interesting. And so, uh, you know, fast forward one and a half years, we launched the first iNFT, the first intelligent NFT. Uh, we actually have a live protocol right now. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, token uh, yet, but there's a live protocol uh, where you can, where we've launched uh, this collection of 100 revenants, these are all intelligent, interactive NFTs. That means they have on-chain assets. There's some parts that are off-chain as well. I'm happy to dive deep into them. But the NFT itself is not no longer just a static image. It's evolved and moved past from uh, JPEGs, which, which are really foundational to NFTs and will definitely have value. But these are now interactive uh, media experiences um, that, uh, that, that exist. So the first one, the first INFT was sold on Sotheby's for $500,000 approximately in June this year. And then we launched a collection of 100 revenants 
they call the revenants. They're uh, are visible on OpenSea. And these 100 revenants are interactive, intelligent NFTs uh, that are brought back to life from history. And then we also launched this other thing called personality pods, which are like, you know, you take any NFT and you can fuse them with a pod on chain and they will be brought to life, whether it's a CryptoPunk or a board Ape. The idea is to be able to bring all NFTs to life and for AI to serve as that connective tissue. So I've shared quite a bit there, but from the history of how it started all the way to like where we are right now, hopefully that gives listeners some context. Yeah, it definitely does. Thanks for the background on that. And I do have just a couple more specific follow-up questions. You mentioned uh, the Revenants, and then you mentioned the Pods. So those are two products or initiatives that I guess uh, Aletheia is is undergoing can you go uh, are there any other products or initiatives or and can you just go into a little bit more detail of what those projects are yeah yeah so i think um if you go to alethea.ai which is a-l-e-t-h-e-a.ai on the left panel you'll see a gitbook white paper that goes into detail on basically this entire experience called noah's ark and uh, on noah's ark you'll see intelligent, interactive NFTs. They're all NFTs. They're all on chain. Their uh, uh, GIF uh, or their JPEG file is just there, but they're embedded with intelligence in that you click on them, you can, you can interact with them in real time and they can talk to you in real time, you can ask them a question and they actually have a coherent personality structure. So if you look at the revenants that are on Noah's Ark, these are 100 historical figures from Julius Caesar to Napoleon, to Karl Marx. They're all open IP characters that we've brought to life. If you ask Julius Caesar how he was murdered, or if you ask Julius Caesar who he is, where and who Cassius is or who Brutus is, he's going to give you an answer that is oriented around his personality and language structure. If you ask Karl Marx the failures of capitalism, he's going to give you an answer on that specific topic and promote his book, Das Kapital, right? So so that's, that's, that's how these... Uh, INFTs are structured. They all have a coherent language. They all have a coherent personality. They can talk to you from that basis. All of these revenants are, today, they're available on Noah's Ark to interact with in real time. And so that's like, Noah's Ark is like the major sort of platform that uh, allows these revenants uh, to come to life and allows a consumer experience that people can go in and talk and chat with these interactive, intelligent NFTs. Um, the pods, the pods are, are uh, an initiative where I'll just uh, I want to sound too esoteric, but if you look at a human being, there is a body, a physical body. There is the mind. Let's say that's the brain, and let's just use the metaphor of the mind for now. And then there is the soul, and let's just stick with that sort of brief, uh, you know, um, a trinity like a body, mind, soul, right? So with the body. Think of a body as any PFP project. With the soul, your personality pod uh, that we have uh, 10,000 of right now, you can take, you can purchase a personality pod for as little as 0.1 ETH, and you're then able to link that pod, link that soul with any NFT body, any PFP body, and actually add a personality to that body. And we'd be uh, we'd be bringing these NFTs, uh, presently we support 10 projects, Right? But we would be adding more and more projects that you can then add a soul to. Once you add the soul, what happens is quite interesting on Noah's Ark. 
you will see these things called levels. Uh, and I'm going through a little bit quickly here, but just to give some context. As the soul evolves over time, the soul, the personality part of the soul, it has certain levels. It has a level one, a level two, a level three. As it is evolved, a level four, level five, so on and so forth. As it is evolving over time, it is available to offer more complex services. So a level one pod, level one soul can uh, is only existing. But a level two soul is able to offer certain services like, you know, send a video message or a video greeting. A level three soul can do real-time interactivity, just like you and I are chatting, except, you know, slightly slower with less human-like intonation, but moving in that direction. A level four soul, and this is where it starts to get really interesting with like, let's say a revenant like Picasso or Frida Kahlo or any of these INFTs, will be able to create generative art with you. Uh, and for you, right? So you can command Picasso to, or you can command Shakespeare, a revenant we have, to create a copy, right? To, to create some blog or website copy. He would be able to generate that for you. You can ask Picasso to paint in a style and he would be able to generate five to 10 paintings for you. So by combining INFTs and the souls, the pods, you're actually fusing them with the body and then they're able to use their mind effectively on the network. And so all of this is happening on the Noah's Ark ecosystem. That's that's how the platform is structured today. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. And I'm thinking of a lot of questions I have, but that sounds really fascinating. But I want to stick to some of the questions I have also. So uh, you sure. mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, generative adversarial networks. Is that the type of AI technology that's used in the revenants and the pods? Yeah, so um, there are five, so, so I'll, I'll, I'd love to, I don't know whether this can be shared up, but there is a good condition report uh, written by a third party on our first INFT called Alice. Uh, that was the first historical INFT ever sold, right? So the first intelligent interactive experience, uh, an NFT that can talk to you. Alice was trained on, for Alice to come alive, she has to have five AI engines, right? So think of like, let's say, I don't know, vehicle, right? So has five, uh, five, let's say, cylinders, right? Five engines running. And these engines include the ability to do real-time lip sync, the ability to generate synthetic voice in real time, the ability to interact and to, the ability to comprehend uh, speech in real time, and the ability to also uh, give output in real time, and then uh, finally the ability to hold a neutral face expression in real time. These five AI engines are a combination of generative adversarial networks, right, like net, uh, AI modules, AI models that we have trained, but there's also this thing called a large language model. A large language model is, is basically, I'm going to just somewhat simplify this a little bit just so that that is straightforward. Imagine, let's say you wanted to create a clone of Gary V, right? You go to Gary V's uh, Twitter profile. A large language model is like this giant library of Alexandria. You go to this Twitter profile of Gary V. You tell the large language model, hey, uh, uh, you know, hey, model, I want you to create a clone of Gary V for me that talks like Gary V, that speaks like Gary V, and I want you to be able to generate content uh, like Gary V. Give that large language model, uh, let's say you give that large language model 30 tweets, right? 
and it then ingests those tweets and is then able to tweet out. It learns from those tweets, the language structure, and is then able to tweet out like Gary Vee. Okay? Now, previously, before LLMs, there's one specific paper that I recommend uh, uh, people read. It does sound a little bit intimidating, but it is actually readable. Uh, and that uh, paper is uh, called uh, Language Models are Few Short Learners. The, the summary of that paper uh, written by the OpenAI team was that you don't need, and this is like, a, a, there are many different ways of summarizing it, but this was one of the key takeaways that I got, which was you don't need a large amount of input data to create meaningful, coherent output. What that, that itself is a transformation in the AI space and a really transformative disruption, because now instead of me feeding the AI model 10,000 pages of Gary Vaynerchuk's books and, and tweets and articles and ideas, now I just need to feed the AI model 10 uh, tweets, and then it creates meaningful output. So there has been a quantum leap almost in efficiency of creating coherent output that was not possible before. And so when you say uh, the models that we have today, um, I, I refer to these models as like an entire uh, machine learning pipeline from uh, real-time animation that does require uh, generative adversarial networks to all the way to large language models that are fairly recent. I wouldn't say recent invention, but they have been popularized recently, right? So the, the, the AI models that run off-chain, these AI models are going through this huge uh, machine learning and deep learning revolution that's happening tangentially outside of the NFT and blockchain ecosystem, right? So it's happening right under our noses, but not many people are, are looking there right now. I think as these two worlds sort of collide, you will start seeing a lot more uh, discussions about integrating some of these cool models into NFT work today. And you're starting to see some of this actually, not just in Revenance, but there are some other really cool collections that I've personally been inspired by, uh, not just like uh, generative artwork, uh, but, but also uh, artwork in the style of certain uh, uh, authors or writers or creators. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So let's, okay, so thinking about the pods, let's say I own a pod, because just for the record, I do. Um, what would be the next step for me to take one of my NFTs and make it intelligent? Okay, so I'm just going to give the answer like to through two parts here, because right now we're going, we are having at the present moment a, a rewards or staking campaign where you can stake your pod and you train because the network is being bootstrapped by our community of about now about thirty thousand folks. But what we can do in this present period is, if you own a pod, you know, make sure you go to the network, you stake, you stake your pod tomorrow is when staking starts, and then you can train the network and make it more intelligent over time. There is this uh, process called. Um, Shared intelligence training, which will occur uh, shortly in on in 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 this specific training window, and then there is individual intelligence training. So if you think of the metaphor of a collective unconscious and all the way to an individual's uh, personal unconscious, right? So let's say we use a union metaphor. Maybe let me make it simpler. Let's say there's a, a hive mind of bees, right? That bee colony, they have all a shared intelligence that they tap into as you want to go out to pollinate, the honey, the flow. There is a certain uh, uh, element in nature that they're all uh, somehow connected with. This is the shared hive mind that they function in. But then at the individual level, there are worker bees with specific tasks and functions. There's a queen bee with a specific evolutionary impetus to, to, to ensure the survival of the hive. 
right? So, and, and then there's several different classes of bees, right? So, there is a shared hive mind, shared collective, and it's similar to, let's say, the shared collective unconscious of all uh, human beings. And then there is like an individual unconscious or an individual mind that exists, right? So, in this case, with the shared intelligence of the network, people will train language and the understanding of the network. They will train the knowledge base of the network. They will participate in, 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 in creation of data sets, but also uploading the network. But then once the network is done, they can then take that part and they can then train it on a personality they want to create. So let's say you want to create, a, um, I don't know, Cryptotex, and maybe let's say because of the cowboy hat, uh, okay, let's say Chuck Norris, right? So, so that's that's the image that's coming to mind because I watched a Bruce Lee documentary uh, recently where Chuck Norris was uh, fighting with him, and uh, they had a martial arts scene. So, let's say you want to create a Chuck Norris-like personality that <laughs> is somewhat over the top, uh, edgy, and is making these grandiose claims about the future, right? Uh, or sorry, about about uh, his own strength. Always uh, talking about you know Chuck Norris doesn't. Push-ups, he pushes the world, he pushes the earth down, right? Something like you want to create uh, an INFT that interacts from that vantage point that talks like that, that has a specific language structure. You'll then go through this intelligence training period, this individual intelligence training period, and this uh, INFT with this pod, this soul would be trained with that uh, data set and then would start talking. You would then start talking like Chuck Norris would because you're training it on Chuck Norris's data. You would then be able to fuse. Uh, once the training is complete, you will then go through this final process called fusion, where you permanently fuse on chain. Presently, it's permanently. You permanently fuse on chain the personality pod, the soul. Let's say Chuck Norris's soul, with uh, your crypto Texan, uh, the 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 uh, punk avatar that I see in front of me. Right. So you combine these two together, and then your uh, INFT. Your NFT is now an INFT, and it can interact in real time and talk to you as if it is a, a Chuck Norris-style crypto punk. And by the way, if you go on Alethea.ai right now, there is one punk exactly like that. Uh, I think this is um, uh, the punk of Claire Silver, who's, who's kindly allowed it to exist on, on Noah's Ark. You can have a chat with uh, Claire Silver's punk on Noah's Ark, and it has a very edgy punk-like personality of somebody who loves... I think it was like 70s, uh, 70s or 80s grunge rock or goth rock or something. And so when you chat with that specific uh, uh, punk, you will have a foundationally different experience than chatting with a stoner cat on Noah's Ark who is singularly obsessed with like getting high, right? And watching his favorite TV shows and making fun of Ashton Kutcher. So like these are the, the possibilities you, you unlock and unpack a very large uh, design dimension that was not possible before. And uh, this is what I think the AI sort of revolution is making possible. So once you have a pod, you go through simple short answers, you go through a training process, and then you can go through a fusion process. Once you fuse it, your, I, your NFT now becomes an INFT. It has a soul, and you can actually see it on the uh, Ethereum mainnet uh, uh, presently once it's uh, fused together. So is there a way to unfuse it if you've fused it together? Yeah, this is something that we've been thinking a little bit about uh, for the community. I think we would get the DAO to decide that, like how they want to... Implement. There's some like second and third order consequences that occur when you disembody a soul, right? Like let's say it's fused and then... Like technically, I, you know, I'm... For example, I'm in favor of fusing and unfusing because I think we're about to enter like a period of like, not just composable like digital currency, but composable intelligence. Right? So you'll be able to cut, copy and paste 
personalities. Like, you know, if you think you can uh, copy and paste text and copy and paste and fork code, uh, but you'd be able to do the same with intelligence and personalities. And as we enter this area of composable personalities and intelligence, it would be kind of cool to be able to like fuse pods together, fuse souls together, unfuse them, remix them, just like you would remix just like you'd remix music today to create new tracks or inspire new covers, you'd be able to do the same. Like you might have a Shakespeare that might speak a bit like Confucius, but then rap like Tupac, and then do art like uh, uh, do art like Picasso, right? So, so these possibilities definitely become possible. They definitely become really implementable because you're taking different language structures and and combining them together to to usher in composable intelligence. So that's that's definitely possible. Yeah, that's that's very interesting because I can see you know individuals on Twitter who I'm thinking of specifically like Punk six five two nine and DC Investor who are just really known by their crypto punks and who they are. Uh, they could just I guess upload any interviews they've done or upload their Twitter feed to this pod and then that they could have this NFT speak for them in so many words. Yeah, they, that would be like one service of their mind that they could offer, right? Like, so like they can scale themselves and <laughs> if they wanted to troll their opponents, you know, DC Investor can be opinionated and he's a, he's a friend of the project and has been a, a great uh, person to bounce ideas off, uh, off as well for us. But for us, um, the, the more important thing here is the breadth and diversity of services that are about to get unlocked without needing human input per se. So the moment you create an automatic or autonomous system like that that can create content, what happens next is is quite uh, interesting because now you can ask DC investors, INFT, a punk to, let's say, generate tweets. And it generates 25 tweets. You take that, you post it up, you create an automated cycle, you're creating content, it's interesting, it's relevant. Some of it might be spammy, might get taken down. Okay. Uh, that's great. But then let's say now you ask DC Investor to fuse with Mozart and to create and, and to fuse with Tupac's rap lyrics and create rap around crypto and Ethereum and to, I don't know, shit on Bitcoin maximalists, right? Let's say that's, that's, a, that's a regular activity, right? So, um, and that rap uh, goes viral on Twitter. You have just created like a media asset and content that resonates with with people and it's created from an AI that is now trained on the personality of DC investor, right? So that's like one possibility that gets unlocked quite quickly. On top of that, you can now create generative art. And as we progress through the levels from level one to level two to level three to level four of the pods, level five is like, and level six is where it starts to like really uh, evolve uh, into the capacities of what uh, the possibilities of AI actually are, the put real potential, which is, uh, you know, let's say, uh, you know, fusion or integration into different metaverses, you know, looking at spatial intelligence, uh, uh, AIs uh, or INFTs that can dance or move uh, later on in different levels, depending on how the DAO wants to do this. Like, let's say Neuralink becomes commercially viable for a consumer product in five years, or three years, and people want to integrate their INFTs, which they own, and the personalities uh, into, and to embody these personalities. Like the possibilities uh, start to really unfold once you start looking at how this evolution, how the machine learning revolution actually can add tremendous value uh, if nicely packaged and built on top of a property rights infrastructure, like how NFTs enable. Yeah, I, one thing you said that really stood out there was, you know, DC, you said DC investor could scale himself, 
in a way. So, mm. like, in a way that he could scale the reach of his intelligence, you know, beyond his own human limitations, I guess. And then I guess you, you're also kind of mentioning or alluding to you could scale the reach of your intellectual collaboration with others, kind of like what you said with DC Investor collaborating with Snoop Dogg to create crypto rap or something like that. That yeah. is really fascinating. Yeah, Snoop Dogg, let's say, he's, he's alive, of course, but then you can also use um, uh, Tupac, who has you know, uh, passed away, right? Uh, uh, and Tupac's rap lyrics are there. They're out there in, in the public domain. You can use that as source material to train the AI to generate content like the way Tupac would sound, right? So DC Investor plus Tupac, I don't know whether that's what the world wants, but that might be an interesting combination. And then you can even add a synthetic voice on top, right? It's, I don't know, give him a Chuck Norris light voice and then you get really confused personality, right? So so if you, if you add these elements together, you're going into this like beautiful sort of remix territory where you know, composable intelligence, composable voices, composable faces, personas, it becomes almost, it starts to mimic the diversity of the human experience almost. And I think that's that's where this, uh, this starts to get more profound and interesting and elevates the possibilities of how, as creators, we can use some of these tools. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, let's move on to the, the Noah's Ark piece of Aletheia. You said that with Noah's Ark, you have different AI personalities, um, Every, I think you mentioned anything from you know Peter Pan. So you've got fictional, and then you have things from I guess Genghis Khan as well. Do you kind of see this as just the I guess the library of Congress of the metaverse in a sense, or how do you view Noah's Ark and what role do you want it to play in the metaverse as a whole? Yeah, that's that's a great uh, great question. We've been thinking quite a lot about this and. Um, I think like one, and I talked a little bit about this at uh, NFT NYC, which was like, if you look at human history, right, uh, you'll start to realize, and not to sound too depressing or too sobering, but generally as a species, uh, we're quite a violent species. Like if you look at, uh, for example, you know, the way the world wars were conducted, World War II, I mean, we've had a relative period of stability and calm, but we're still at war, uh, whether it's economic war. Or, or whether it is military conflict, right? But it's not at the scale of like nuclear bombs. Although that right now is in our history and provenance as a species, right? Like the first nuclear bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We are capable today as a species of wiping out entire cultures. Like if we wanted to, and that's usually unfortunately the way, um, I don't know whether it's a genetic bug or a genetic feature, but there is a core sort of desire to dominate and compete. And this sort of, that can be very powerful if, if channeled correctly, but deeply harmful and subversive to actually our entire evolution. So that's the context, right? Like we, we come from the history. History tells us enough about our violent nature, whether it's, you know, nature or nurture. I leave that for another debate, but historical context does show that we've been deeply violent, right? So, and, and if you look at that and you look at the meme and mimetic nature of the word Noah's Ark or how it was, you know, the stories around how it was around the survival of the flood against, you know, to preserve human culture. There is today, for example, a Noah's Ark that has been created in Sweden uh, that is oriented around preserving uh, seeds and and plants and grains and, and specific agricultural products that uh, the earth is, is giving out just because the amount of change, uh, the staggering amount of uh, 
uh, climate change that's occurring is uh, causing some of these crops to uh, be go extinct, right? And they have created a Noah's Ark to essentially preserve the agricultural biodiversity. So they're, they're doing that as a thoughtful initiative. From our perspective at Alethea, uh, we looked at this standpoint and felt that the Library of Congress example that you give is, is directionally actually really correct. What I talked a little bit about in my uh, conversation at uh, NFT NYC was a bit about the complete collapse and uh, destruction of the Library of Alexandria, which was like Wikipedia before Wikipedia. Right? And like it was the sum total of a lot of knowledge that had been had been accumulated, uh, you know, spiritual, metaphysical, scientific knowledge, all, all, all disappeared and gone, right? So I think from, from our perspective, like a Noah's Ark of culture, a Noah's Ark of intelligence is, is needed where you can preserve some of these language structures and personalities. And this is where, you know, it starts to get a bit of, a bit controversial, right? Like, yes, Peter Pan is a fictional personality, no problem. Genghis Khan, you know, he was one of the most violent dictators to the point where, you know, although I have no Mongol... Uh, uh, Mongolian ancestry, a large uh, portion of DNA of the world is, uh, there is a portion of Genghis Khan's DNA in it because of the uh, amount of uh, raping, pillaging, looting that occurred during his time. But of course, you know, he's an ancient sort of dictator, not, you know, not too recent in history. But when, let's say, people want to start preserving the characters that are more controversial, like Hitler, to, to think through issues like this is going to be very, very critical for the Tao to determine. Because on one hand, we need to acknowledge that evil existed, right? That these people did conduct uh, evil. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, as AI and synthetic content comes up, there are going to be people who are going to create like, you know, uh, you know 4chan or 8chan-like environments for where it can be very destructive to... Uh, to people who have been affected or impacted by hate speech, right? So, so we have to be thoughtful about this. Uh, the the challenge with all of this is, is there is a creative side to it, but when you start looking at trying to preserve human culture, and li- and the Library of Congress does this actually. I think there are books that are hate speech oriented books, but they have been preserved because uh, and they've not been like multiplied endlessly and distributed like ten thousand copies of Mein Kampf, no right? But it's more that there there is there are books like this to show that this uh, actually existed because otherwise you run into the other problem which is erasing history, right? And and that creates its own uh, sort of complication. So we need to acknowledge our history as a species so we can learn from it. And I think Noah's Ark for us at Alethea is oriented on preserving that aspect of it uh, but also evolving its intelligence over time. Yeah, I can see that being uh, quite the moral conjury within the DAO on whether you should allow INFTs in the Noah's Ark of people like Hitler or even someone like David Duke, who is a very prominent mm. KKK member, right? And I, mm. I, yeah, I, it's really just kind of a philosophical conversation, I think. Like, it, is it important to understand why these people felt this way? And does that help further humanity's growth? Or is it better just to leave it alone? And if people want to do that own research on their own, they have those resources to do it. Uh, yeah, that's just kind of interesting. And I guess I, it just kind of depends on what the DAO decides there. Um, so, but is there a DAO right now? Uh, is, there a, is there a token? Yeah, no, I th- just going back to your idea comment, uh, absolutely. I think the, the, the moral quandary, the philosophical nature of this, it's, it's really important that we grapple and confront some of these issues because 
the, the challenge here is that I, I'm very certain that a metaverse like this um, that's more centralized will definitely exist where you can have access to the entire repository and you're training centralized um, uh, models of Facebook or something like that to just create a hyper-efficient metaverse. And for us, like, we really want to design this thoughtfully. We want the community to participate in thinking through some of the philosophical quandaries. There's not going to be an easy answer on some of these things. But there are certain frameworks that have been helpful, right? Like, I mean, in my case, sometimes I worry myself, uh, having grown up as a Muslim, and, you know, if somebody decides in the DAO to, or somehow there's a vote and some people say, okay, let's create an INFT of Muhammad, right? And that's it. I get a fatwa and, and tomorrow I cannot do any more AMAs, right? And so, like, there is, like, there is an entire uh, unfortunate culture of violence in, in, in some cultures that is somewhat, it, it does exist. Uh, it does exist sometimes as reactionary because if you look at recent history of colonized people, you realize, my goodness, these people were completely downtrodden. Like I, I grew up in Singapore and I had a chance to live in Southeast Asia. And as I was traveling, I realized very quickly how how difficult it is still for I mean, people say, you know, pull up your bootstraps and do hard work. When you realize the amount of IMF loans that have crippled them under significant debt uh, that ha and the same loans that are supposed to be given out to the people are going to the class of people who are deeply corrupt and have little interest in developing infrastructure, you start to see that these systemic inefficiencies that really prevent people from, from rising up. So sometimes I'm not justifying any of the violence that, that has occurred, but uh, once once a person spends time in, in some of these uh, hellish places, you get an understanding of how challenging it is for them to get out of the get out of the hell. So what I'm saying is that um, these questions, these moral quandaries will occur regularly around preserving our culture and history. Some libraries, I think, have done it well, right? Like uh, I, I like that, for example, diversity of thought was as well represented in the Library of Congress. There are certain libraries that have made a conscious decision to preserve some really harmful works of literature, not because they, they are interested in hate speech, but it's because they want people who want to seek out this material to be able to understand that this exists as historical provenance, right? So it's like, you know, you have a bunch of spam NFTs, but and they are, they are really terrible on the edge, but they're still relevant to the human story because because of this one spam NFT, the entire network got taken down, right? So so something like that, that spam NFT has some value to the overall network. So that's sort of like a crude analogy I would give. And I'd say that to determine some of these things, we've been thinking a lot about how a DAO should be constructed and built. Uh, we don't have a token yet, but we will have the Ali token distributed uh, to be used as a utility token and governance token in the network for people to participate and, and build the network out as it grows and evolves and determine the evolution of AI. So that's scheduled for a little bit, more, I mean, either in Q1 or uh, later Q4 this year. But we're thinking deeply about how to uh, uh, structure some of these conversations. What I do know is that our centralized uh, shoulders right now uh, are no match for the complexity of trying to contain human culture. Right? And so, like, otherwise you would run into the same problems that YouTube and Twitter run into because they try to curate culture, they try to curate what videos are, they try to set the boundaries, but they fail regularly because uh, human beings are uh, ingenious in many ways and can find, and there are new lines of cultures and stories that are coming up where we don't know what the lines are. Like, what is the line, like, would, would people censor, like, when, when the Bitcoin white paper was written and, let's say, it was distributed to the Fed, Federal Reserve, right, uh, would that paper, if, 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 
if it had been written in an environment like, because I grew up in Singapore and I can understand the, the communist Chinese mind a uh, little bit more, not because Singapore is communist, but because friends who uh, had moved from China and was pursuing an education in Singapore. And if you tr- if you look at the history, uh, the reason why the Chinese are so closed is because when they were open, they would, uh, this was about 150, 200 years ago, they were deeply exploited by uh, the English, right, for through the opium trade and, and through many internal wars. And so that's why they have this really tremendously rigid control structure. Sometimes I think to myself, if the Bitcoin white paper was written in Mandarin and it, if it was put in China today, I don't think it would have seen the light of day, right? So there are certain powerful opportunities that get unlocked when a culture is open and diverse. Uh, but then there are also edges of diversity that seem to really uh, destroy uh, our own ability to evolve as a species. So that means like, if the if if the truth is so, uh, if if the message is so far out of the fringe, can we as a human uh, body actually integrate that message, or do we reject it? Right, and so this is the problem where you try and define what genius is versus what insanity is, because sometimes what seems like insanity today actually might be real genius when the Bitcoin white paper was written, and you know I'm pretty sure like. No, uh, Federal Reserve uh, folks or people uh, uh, managing central authorities would be would be thinking of Satoshi as an insane uh, person, right? Which is where anonymity and pseudonymity also play a very powerful protective role in in ensuring that uh, that these uh, ideas sometimes can see the light of day without the personality interfering in them. So, I think at a high level, there's no real clear answer for us in in terms of some of the lines of culture that we're going to cross. But I think at a deeper foundational level, there are certain principles around free speech and expression of ideas that I think make us human, right? So without these uh, core tenets, we're unable to think. And, and that, that is uh, too, too high a danger to adopt uh, right now, at least in the way the world is moving. Yeah, and do you feel like the metaverse and crypto in general give people more of a platform to speak their mind or act the way they want to, or I guess kind of what's your view on just the metaverse in general and how that can be beneficial for just individuals all over the world? Yeah, I think the one one frame that I've seen in the crypto world, and, and that's a good question also, one frame that I've seen in the crypto world is oriented a little bit around, you know, conversations around open metaverse and closed metaverse, right? So that's that's a fair conversation to have. I just want people to imagine that's an x-axis, right? So on the right end of the axis is open, on the left end is closed. Most conversations are around open and closed. Where we need to talk about is whether it's open and intelligent or closed and intelligent. So you need to have a y-axis here which says intelligent or non-intelligent. And this is really important because uh, most of the Web3 metaverses that exist today are not foundationally integrating AI in a way that a closed intelligent metaverse like Facebook's uh, will be able to, right? So if you look, I'll give you a sort of brutal, crude example. If you look at the news feed that Facebook created, the primary product uh, revenue driver of its, um, I mean, drove a lot of revenue in mobile sponsored ads and in many other different ways. It was loved by shareholders and analysts uh, alike. And and it was a great feature of product that created a lot of value for the Facebook ecosystem. But it did removed a lot of value and attention value from uh, the users, right? Like it shortened our brain spans, hooked us to the dopamine hits and cycles. That newsfeed product was so powerfully algorithmically curated that uh, the closest analogy today is TikTok's video feed, right? So if you start curating your own TikTok experience, 
you start realizing, my goodness, how personalized these videos can get according to your taste preferences. So that TikTok algorithm reminds me of the original Facebook newsfeed where you'd spend, you know, sometimes uh, uh, not just 10, 15 minutes, but you could end up scrolling uh, for an hour or so and realizing, holy dear, uh, you know, I've, I've taken up more than an hour scrolling the newsfeed. The newsfeed becomes really relevant because you're giving the AI contextual information about what your interests, uh, interests are, and it's using that information to fine-tune its messaging to you, and, of course, using some human labor as input, right? So if you look at Facebook's capacity right now to develop a closed and intelligent metaverse, there is really, it's going to be exceptionally challenging the moment you add the dimension of intelligence. So if it's closed and intelligent, it's on the top left. If it's open and intelligent, there are very few Web3 metaverses actually looking at that categorically. Most Web3 metaverses, whether they're Axis, Sandbox, where they are is not yet fully intelligent in the path of evolution, but certainly open, right? So they're open, they have decentralized principles and ethos, but they haven't fully integrated the uh, multiplier of power and cap capacity and capability that, you know, strong machine learning algorithms and AI scientists and researchers. So I think about the metaverse from that perspective, instead of just a horizontal x-axis of left to right of um, close to open, think of it as the same, close to open, but add a y-axis in there and see, and at the top of the y-axis have intelligent and below unintelligent, or at least evolving in intelligence. And you'll start seeing the Web3 dynamic is actually stuck a little bit in the in 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 games that may not be fully integrating AI yet because a large part, and this is uh, not just accidental, but I think somewhat designed, a large portion of AI is actually centralized. Today, no AI compute uh, can exist or and anybody that tells you that they can do it or you know do real-time complex GPU compute on chain, please run far away from them because it's too, 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 too difficult to do that on a blockchain uh, today. It's too much uh, compute requirements. It's technically impossible to do especially after you start looking at gas costs and you realize, my goodness, for a single transaction, you have to pay so much. What about complex GPU-level compute? That's not possible today. So one of the reasons why I think as well is once you start looking at centralized infrastructure, then you need to uh, start thinking about bridges to decentralized infrastructure. And so uh, sometimes a decentralized ethos, if it's too focused on decentralized, it will miss out on this AI revolution because... Um, you do need stronger curation mechanisms and algorithms so you can actually deliver uh, deeper, more meaningful experiences to your users right? so that they understand that the AI is evolving, it's learning its preferences, it's growing, and it's becoming more curated to them. So a personality that you create that, you know, you might like, like the example earlier that we gave of, uh, I don't know, Chuck Norris, INFT, that sounds like Tupac, and uh, maybe talks like DC Investor on Twitter, like that's possible, but you'd want that personality to be intelligent and evolving over time. So in essence, the, the metaverse is evolving in this sort of spectrum of like the way I see it of closed, open, intelligent, and intelligent along those axes. But the reason why we need to push Web3 into the intelligent side is foundationally important because otherwise the closed and intelligent approach is going to yield so much, so much more powerful network effects the world may be, there's such a strong gravitational pull towards closed and uh, intelligent that it would be difficult for Web3 uh, principles and decentralized ethos to survive because the reason why the metaverse is important is from a moral footprint standpoint. There are certain technologies, like this is not 
this technology is not just like, you know, right, creating a Word document or, you know, uh, creating a productivity app. Um, the metaverse has a higher moral footprint. Why? Because it has a very powerful mimetic quotient attached to it. In essence, it has the capacity and capability to control human imagination at scale, like at a scale never before seen. So that means if you create these immersive and entertaining experiences, you now have tremendous control on the mimetic energy of the human species, right? What they think about, what they feel about. You have a monopoly on imagination if you're not careful with sort of this the moral footprint of a technology like this. So I consider like the metaverse and foundationally, philosophically, how, how we think about Aletheia is that this is not just um, a, a technology that's coming or going. This is going to have such a high moral footprint that it will require and necessitate uh, thoughtful discussions and ideas around our decentralized ethos, right? So so uh, it, it may even, I mean, not to sound hyperbolic, but like nuclear power, for example, has a very high moral footprint, right? If it goes wrong, my goodness, you can see the harms. Uh, uh, machine learning and AI absolutely uh, fall in that category. I'd say blockchain and, and decentralized currencies also fall into that category because they empower people with freedom. But when using correctly, uh, you can really enslave an entire population by controlling how they uh, spend uh, any currency issued to their wallets, right? So, so that's that's the broader sort of landscape and how how we view things. Well, that's. That's great. I, I really appreciate your thoughts there. It's obviously something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about and you know, it just kind of gives me a lot to take in and uh, reflect on, I, I think, as well. Um, so we're kind of running up on time here, but I just wanted to get just two more questions in. Um, are you surprised at all at the traction that your community at Aletheia has gained in such a short time, uh, b being that it's just such a complex project? And it's just, it's so popular and growing very quickly. And this this question was from Dark Forest Capital, specifically. I appreciate the, the question. Yeah, it's, it's been really crazy to see the growth. Uh, I think, yeah, to, to be honest, uh, Dark Forest Capital, uh, if you saw us in 2020 or 20, uh, late 2019 and early 2020, you would feel a sense of compassion and pity for, for our state and condition back then. Because nobody was getting it. Like, you know, this, firstly, NFTs are a scam, one off, and then you're adding AI to it, you must be like a crazy scammer, right? So like, so that was, the, that was how it was resonating in 2020. But I think in 2021, once people started understanding NFTs, now people are genuinely curious, like, hey, what's next? <laughs> what do we do with this PFP projects? What do we do with these, um, with these IP assets that we've created, right? And, you know, some people are going to play to earn gaming. I think foundationally, once people start understanding the power uh, that AI will bring to this space, they'll really start to deeply think about um, uh, uh, adding that intelligence and interactivity to it. So I think it's a fun experience. Like if you go to Noah's Ark, you can chat with Julius Caesar. You, I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong, this is still a bit clunky and sometimes there's one or two bugs uh, that occur with the AI. Uh, but, you know, you can have a genuine real-time interaction with some of these characters and, uh, uh, and have a conversation with them and have real-time interactivity. And that's where it starts to get really interesting because all of this is live. Like it's not a white paper or... It's not a protocol that we're going to build five years down or two years down. It's there. It's real. It's tangible. You can experience it. And soon you will be able to link any NFT with a pod or a soul and bring it to life. And I think that's exciting to people because, um, you know, I've heard so many stories now, whether it was an NFT NYC or meeting with a community in person, that people who want to bring their grandparents back to life, there are people who want to preserve aspects of their culture, there are people who want to tell stories of themselves, there are people who want to pass their stories down to great-grandkids not yet born, 
So we're seeing this uh, uh, high mimetic quotient and imagination being captured by the community, and that's uh, that's exciting. I think it's you know largely a function of just brute force persistence over time, but also because you know NFTs have had a moment. So I consider ourselves more fortunate and lucky because. Um, there were times I think last year where I felt like I don't think uh, this is working out just just because of the intensity of the pandemic and the challenges in, in raising funds. But I am glad uh, the team uh, the team has stuck it through. Yeah, well, good, uh, good friends like uh, Dark Forest Capital as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's a great project. And like I said, I've got a couple pods and I'm looking forward to uh, staking them because I've got a couple NFTs that I would like to uh, add a little more personality to. So that's that's exciting. But yeah, so we're up on time. We're over time, actually. But I'll just let you uh, just let us know, uh, let the audience know where can people go to find out more about you and Aletheia? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Twitter uh, is where we spend a lot of time. Twitter handle is real underscore Aletheia, A-L-E-T-H-E-A. You know, uh, we share quite a bit of content on our Discord. We just did a couple of giveaways today. We are, we are going to this uh, staking campaign and period. And so I encourage all of you to try out the revenants and INFTs that exist on Aletheia.ai to have a chat with them, interact with them. Uh, broadly, this is a new paradigm called train to earn. So once you train your AI up, uh, it will be able to earn rewards for you in the network. And these rewards can get more sophisticated and... Uh, enriching over time as uh, your AI is able to, your INFT is able to create more complex services. So it's the same thing. It's like body, mind, soul. Once your INFT has a more coherent, developed uh, mind, it would be able to offer some really cool services to the network. So I'm excited to have you all in the Index Group community with us as well on this uh, on this journey. So so thank you, for, uh, Crypto Texan, for hosting this and I appreciate you uh, learning more about us as well. Yeah, Absolutely. Arif, yeah, we're happy to have you here. And like I said, it's a great project. Really looking forward to seeing how it progresses. And also thanks to everyone else in the audience who's listening. This is being recorded and we'll probably get it out in about a week or so. So thanks again, Arif, and have a great rest of your week, everybody. Take care. Cheers, everyone.